Hey everyone, this is Jonathan. And I'm Jeremy. And we are the Evangelicals. I want to give a shout out at the very beginning of this episode to Jeff. Jeff. Jeff asked us to talk about hypocrisy. And so you know what we're going to talk about today? Hypocrisy. Well, yeah. I guess it's just good that we actually have people that listen Listen, we we are we are invested in the listener. <laughs> so if you want to reach out to us and say, "Hey, we we I want to hear about this." Odds are we'll talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. You know. So let's let's hypocrisy. Yeah. This will be this will be fun. I mean, hypocrisy is on the on the one hand, it seems like an obvious topic and an obvious problem with an obvious solution. But hypocrisy is very complicated. We we mentioned maybe last podcast or a couple ago the 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 quote by Brennan Manning that was very famous made by DC made very famous by DC Talk on their um, Jesus Freak album. I think it was that God's they doing a new thing. Jesus Freak. Yeah, it was on Jesus Freak. I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> no, okay. it was on. G- yeah, Jesus Freak. I think it was on at the beginning of. Um, maybe there's track. What if I stumble? That's correct. Um, this this phrase by Brennan Manning. The greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, yet walk out the door and let him down by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, the thing about hypocrisy is that hypocrisy is not just rooted in the actions of the person being deemed the hypocrite. Hypocrisy is actually rooted in the expectations of the person calling the hypocrite a hypocrite if that makes sense so so let's say that let's say that jeremy uh what's something that i would would think hypocritical let's let's say that that jeremy's you want um, a goofy example that's fine let's do a goofy example alabama is the best football team in the country no this isn't a good example (laughs) no 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 no, no, this is not a good example. All right, so. we're, okay, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna say that we're gonna say cursing or swearing. All right, cursing. Let's say let's say let's say that because you're a pastor, I don't think I don't think you should use foul language. I don't think you should have a potty mouth. Okay, sure. So let's say I hear Jeremy say something that I think is vulgar or inappropriate, regardless. Regardless of Jeremy's context or or maybe justification for using that language, maybe it's possible that he has a Christian justification for using the language that he used. Maybe he felt that it was most effective in the context that he was in to communicate what he wanted to communicate. Okay, whatever. I would call him a hypocrite because in my lens of my expectations of the pastorate and what I think of Jeremy, I think that he's a hypocrite, right? And so what's, what's interesting <clears throat> is the the word hypocrite or or the term hypocritical has become has become a term or leverage that we use to say that other people are wrong this was seen in the democratic debate one of the most eloquent um scenes of the democratic debate was when Pete Buttigieg did i say his Buttigieg, i think his last name correctly so know. he he just called out evangelical christians very radically at one of the debates when they were talking about immigration and children and he said you know it's completely um bogus i'm not quoting him here but he said something to the effect of it's hypocritical that 
Christians would, who say that they follow the teachings of Jesus, who looks who looks after the poor and the marginalized, would treat you know immigrants this way. I'm not wanting to have an argument about whether or not he was right. I'm just saying that this language of hypocrisy, this was the kind of the greatest thing that he could bring against Christianity, you know, and everybody in the audience, they applaud and they're like, yeah, that's right. Those people are hypocrites, you know, which this, this, if we've demonstrated anything in our podcast, it's that, that politics and faith are very complicated. Like it's not easy to make, to make Christianity a political platform and that we're a miss in America because we think that we can do this. Right. But but I think to start out, we are going to, we're talking about hypocrisy today. I just want to express that it's really, it's rooted in the expectations of the person calling the other person a hypocrite. Now, I think that people can be hypocritical. I don't think that, a, a, I think that we can do things as Christians that are very hypocritical. I think that there's a seed of truth in what Pete said about, about Christianity. You know, even though there are Christians that would have political justifications for whatever the issue was that he was addressing politically. I just think that it's helpful in starting a conversation about hypocrisy to recognize that there are two sides. There's the actions of the person being called a hypocrite, but there's the expectations of the person calling the other a hypocrite. I think that just maybe even going back to the root when Jesus even used this word to understand that it was a theatrical term, that it was used for actors uh, and when Jesus used this, there was a theater nearby, and he was looking at the Pharisees or, or, or whomever you know he was looking at at the time, and said, "You're you're being a hypocrite, you're hypocritical." And they would have known that language, that that's what they called people in theater who put on a different mask and was playing a different person. They were hypocrites. It wasn't. It's a very negative term for us. It was a theatrical term um, in in the day of Jesus. And I think what's hard about so these people were personifying something different than they actually were because they were acting in a play. And I think the hardest part about when we're getting into this is it seems that in Christianity that we have no just baseline that is, because I think you're right. uh, There's a a philosopher, uh, an Irish philosopher, his name is Peter Rollins. And he says that it's hard for us sometimes that I look at somebody else and think they're a monster and think that how could they believe that and they're being such a hypocrite or they're being this. And he says, what we have to do is is understand that when they look at me, they may think that I'm just as big of a monster as I think that they are. And and so I think when we're trying to understand um, where this other person is coming from, why they have those those views, why they're they're thinking like that, that it's hard for us as Christianity because it seems like with all the denominations, with all of the understandings about who God is, about who Jesus is, about what he came to be, who he came to be, there's no baseline that ties us all together. And so you may think something about Jesus that's okay in your denomination or your tribe or your understanding that I look at and think there's no way, you know, and I think we do this Theories of atonement. What did Jesus do on the cross? What did, what did, uh, what was Jesus doing at the Last Supper when he was telling his disciples about what does it mean to be broken and poured out and washing feet? And but so there's no base that all Christians can come back to as far as ethics are concerned. You know, we talk about Apostles' Creed, but but what comes out of how are we to be in the world and act in the world and and how are we to live? And so that makes it difficult because you're right. I could 
be a foul mouth pastor, and I know a lot of pastors who do swear and yeah, yeah. and and think that that is it's how to be relevant. totally okay. Yeah, people talk about this, sure, because for them it's it's just how you talk. It's it yeah. has nothing to do with them viewing that like as integrity. a negative thing. It's just it's a it's a language. It's a vernacular. It's a way you speak. Um, and you would look at me and say, I can't believe you'd even think about going to that church because that pastor uses those words or whatever. Um, so like I said, I feel like it stems from, we all have different platforms or different, and maybe that's a bad word to say, but different places of origin as far as how we view all of this and where we're coming from. And it makes it difficult because we just want to pick at each other and look at each other and say, well, that's, that's wrong or that's not who Jesus would have been. It's also interesting to just think generationally about how perspectives change based on how much power individuals have. So, and and this is this is just kind of understood like it's sociologically in America that um, in particular demographics of people, younger people tend to be more liberal in ideology, and older people tend to be more conservative in their ideology. And what what's What's interesting about the root of that generalization is that young people don't don't have power. And so oftentimes liberal ideology that's manifested politically in America is kicking against the powers that be Mm. or like libertarianism or whatever it may be. But a lot of conservative politics tend to or conservative ideologies tend to want to maintain a particular measure of status quo. This for me, this was seen most clearly in the last election cycle in the letter that Dr. James Dobson wrote. I think it was published in Christianity Today. And he said, here's why I am voting for Donald Trump. What's really interesting about this is um, I, there are a few people that have probably been more influential on me in my own life than the, Dr. James Dobson, his ministry with focus on the family, all that he's done for the family, marriages, this type of stuff. And I've always really just really idolized this guy, admired this guy. I don't know if many people know. He's actually, he grew up in our denomination in the Church of the Nazarene, went to Pasadena College before he went on to do graduate work in psychology, uh, which was a school of the Church of the Nazarene. It's now Point Loma Nazarene University. That's just, you know, an aside there. <laughs> just a little extra information about Dr. James Dobson. But <clears throat> I've always I've always admired him and his work. Well, so he came out with this article, you know, why I'm voting for Donald Trump back to this conversation of hypocrisy. And this is after this letter, you know, many people deemed Dr. James Dobson a heretic. The reason that he wrote the, the letter was essentially to say the laws that are made in this country can be determined by the Supreme court. And I'm convinced that Trump will nominate the people that I want to be on the court. And as an older man, kind of, where I sit with my purview, I think that the best the best of all of the options would be to elect this man to be president, not because I find him to be moral, not because I find him to be, you know, this guy who has this great record, you know, that not because he read my books, <laughs> you know, in the 80s, <laughs> uh, which I was coming out with, you know, Dobson. Um, but, but, because, but because we would maintain because we would maintain a certain sway of power, a certain amount of power in the political structure in America as conservative evangelical Christians. And I read this letter 
And I, you know, my, my, my knee jerk reaction is you hypocrite, <laughs> you know, <laughs> man, I can't believe you're doing this. Dr. James Dobson, you're like the pillar of integrity. You're the guy who loves the family. I mean, Donald Trump's been married how many times, you know, he has all these alleged affairs, uh, uh, scandals with, you know, money or like whatever it is. You know, I can't, I can't believe that you're, you're saying I'd vote for this guy. But for Dobson, he wasn't being a hypocrite. He was maintaining personal integrity because at this point in his life, as one who is a part of the establishment, he wanted to maintain a particular measure of power and sway that he's not confident can be maintained or has been maintained at the local church level. And so he's reaching out saying, hey, we need to, we need to count on our, on our, on our president to, main, to make sure to maintain some sort of, you know, Christian ethic or, or moral order in the universe. And a lot of Christians, you know, saw this to be just complete flagrant hypocrisy from a man who had given his life to the morals of the home. Right. I mean, if there's anything that Dr. James Dobson has given his life to, it's the moral foundation of the home. Yeah. And I mean, if there's anybody in public, in the public spectacle that has made a mockery of the moral foundation of the home. It's Donald Trump in his in his in his public in, in his public life in the past, right? And so people look at so people were look, reading this letter and they're they're what they were saying, you know, is Dr. James Dobson, this is this is hypocrisy. But from his lens it wasn't at all. You know? And I think what's what's difficult and and I think we want to jump into some Bible, but I think this may be a good transition is I think yeah. part of of looking at other people and calling them hypocrites is there is this judgment aspect that you're making a judgment based on their decision. And, and so there's just, there's several scriptures and even Jesus himself talks about this in the sermon on the Mount where he says, don't judge or, or you will be judged in the same measure that, that you judge others, which I think is once again, trying to, to understand that, that if I am putting this on this other person, then it's going to be given to me as well. And then he says this line that is very was very comical, I think, at the time that we've lost the comedy in it. But don't take the plank out of your own eye before you remove the speck. Or take of, take the plank out of your own eye. Take the plank out of your own eye before you remove the speck. And so he's almost saying what you're dealing with is bigger than maybe even what your brother is dealing with. And you got to remove that first. Then... He doesn't say, don't take the speck out. He's like, make sure that you are doing the self-evaluation and then you will be able to, to take the speck out. And so I think, in essence, what he's saying is, understand that you're coming from a place, understanding that understand that you are, that, that where you are coming from has nothing to do with power or with ulterior motives, but you really are trying to, in essence, be the kingdom trying to in essence be the baseline of of loving God and loving others because then you will be able to see where this person's coming from and maybe help them understand a little bit more about where you're coming from. And so it, he he never says don't but I think part of it is having this being self-aware. <laughs> I think maybe that's something that we struggle with as Christians is being self-aware um and and understanding that that I'm not trying to control you or coerce you to be a part of anything that that would be selfishly motivated for me, but I am really trying to help you 
be more like Jesus. That that's that to me is the base on some level. Because even later he says you can judge a fruit or judge a tree by the fruit it bears. And so it's and and in Christianity we struggle with this whole thing of judging and 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 I think the biggest critique from people who aren't Christians is you're just so judgmental. And so we we struggle to walk that balance. You know what I'm saying? We don't want to be judgmental. And, you know, it seems like every non-Christian in the world knows the verse, judge not, yes, you be judged. You know, like it seems to be a very popular one. And so I think it's 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 always this tricky balance of how, what is the call? How do we live into that understanding? Um, and and it's difficult. It's difficult. You know what I'm saying? Well, it, it feels it feels difficult. I guess there are so many issues around judgment. Um, I want to I want to come back. I want to stay in the Matthew, but I also want to reference Paul here. Sure, because to, to your to your point that you were making about Jesus, you know, later then says you can judge a tree by its fruit. There is this sense that in Christianity, conviction is very important. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says the spiritual man, the spiritually discerning person makes judgments about all things and goes on to say, we have the mind of Christ. We can judge things. We can discern things. We can know what is right and wrong because we have the mind of Christ. What Jesus says back here, do not judge lest you be judged. Um, he, is be, he is telling us to be careful. Sure. He is telling us to be very careful. You had, you had brought this to my attention before coming on today that we don't, we don't often think about the fact that right after the judgment passage is where Jesus says, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn uh, turn and maul you. I'm reading the NRSV. You know, turn and trample you also is what some other translations tear you say. apart. Yeah, yeah, tear you apart. <clears throat> and and um, give some commentary on that. I mean, you were, you were talking about this earlier. I, I think that that sometimes we use our power or we use both negative and positive things to control people. And I think that part of of the hypocrisy in us trying to understand that I am coming from a point of view, and we talk about this a lot, you know, I'm a white male living in Northwest Ohio. And and so I see the world from from a perspective that that other people see it from a different place. And so I think what he was saying is sometimes we use power and negative things. So we judge and say, how could you do this? And this is, you're not being good and you're being hypocritical. And and the motive is to try to get them to believe like I do yeah. or to see the world like I do. And so the judging, the, the, the taking, trying to take the plank out of my own eye before I take the speck, the, the negative part is trying to get people in line to my, the way I see the world and to act the way that I want them to. I think the, the pearls to pigs can also be seen as this way of trying to control people um, through good things. Hey, if you do this, I'll send you to Tahoe, or if you do this, I'll buy you a new car. And, and so the, it's this positive way of trying to get people in line. And sometimes people, they'll just, they, they don't, they're not ready to, to receive what God, you know what I'm saying? To receive the good news or to receive what God wants them to receive. And so if we try to coerce them through good ways to control them or to do what we want them to do, they're just going to take what we, they're just not going to be ready to receive that. And they're going to tear us apart. And, and, and so it seems Jesus is saying, you can't control people. You can't, through negative ways, through positive ways, all we can do is is understand who God has called us to be, who God has created us to be, and try to love people, try to um, em- embrace people, but understand that that once again, um, 
the Apostle Paul, um, Paul watered, Apollos planted or something, but God is the one that makes it grow. And I think we try to force, I think we try to coerce. And if people, I, I just believe, if people aren't responding to, to the love that God has for them, um, the minute I'm not on them and hounding them, they're just going to go back to doing whatever it is that they were doing. Or the minute I'm not showering them with good things, they're just going to go back to doing what it is they were doing before. But if I can get them to respond to God's love and God's grace, um, I believe that will will be there for eternity. So this is really this idea of control is very profound this passage, we talked about what's right after this passage of do not judge, right before it is Jesus saying, do not worry. Yeah. And an antidote to worry, we, the myth, a myth is that an antidote to worry is control. Mm-hmm. Like we think if I can control it, then I, then I can master it and I don't have to worry about it. And we think this about other people. We think if I manipulate this other person, if I can change this other person, if I can get this person to do what I want this other person to do, Everything's going to be okay. And there is a great, there is a great hypocrisy fundamentally in assuming as a Christian that the change that I have in mind for this person is the change that God has for them. Because the fact of the matter is I'm not the Holy Spirit. Right. And this is, this is a problem in ethics, you were talking about ethics. What's the ethical baseline? This isn't. This is a problem of ethics in Christianity, and why we have so many different denominations, and why we have so many different takes, is because, <clears throat> on the one hand, you have people who are who are in power in the church, wanting to coerce people under them for greater change, and it's affecting those people under them negatively, but the people on the top, all they're seeing is the change that they want to bring about and not how it's affecting the people below. This is essentially why the Protestant Reformation happened, right? I mean, the the Catholic Church was wanting to build St. Peter's Basilica, and I've got to tell you, I've been to St. Peter's a couple of times, and it is magnificent. Sure. I mean, it is just beautiful. The, the architectural vision of that beautiful sanctuary is unparalleled. It's wonderful. It might even be a good thing. Right. Like, like it's, it's really amazing. I think we think about the, about the Protestant Reformation as like everything Catholic was so terrible and so evil, you know, and that's the way we tell the story as Protestants. The fact of the matter is the Catholic church was trying to raise money and they found this guy in Germany who was really good at raising money. And the reason that he was really good at raising money is because he was really good at manipulating people. And he was going around telling people that uh, if they gave so much money, they could ensure that their friends that they weren't sure were in heaven, that their souls would either leave hell or leave purgatory and they would ascend into heaven. It's, it's the first televangelist of our... <laughs> Jeremy, it is. No, it is. This I mean, is a traveling roadshow, man. but at the same no, time. No, it's so true. Yeah. This is the beginning, man. Yeah. It's it's the traveling roadshow. This guy's going from town to town. Promising, if you give, this will happen. Yes. And Martin Luther says, Martin Luther, who we need to remind people was a Catholic priest. Martin Luther, who was not just like exciting about creating the greatest divorce and rift in religious history. I mean, he was, he was one of He wanted to, be, to reform. Yes. He didn't want to leave. Yes. He wanted to reform. He was looking at this and he was saying, this is hypocrisy. This is hypocrisy. Well, when he was calling, when he started calling out the powers that be, the powers that be were like, listen, you monk and, uh, where was he in Germany? 
Uh, Witten, Wittenberg, Witten, Wittenberg. Wittenberg. The Wittenberg church door. <laughs> um, the, these guys, the, you know, the Catholic, head of the Catholic church is like, oh, this punk in Wittenberg is going to ruin our fundraising operation, <laughs> you know? But he really, he really set off, and the world was kind of ripe for it. I mean, so many things have been happening in history. Uh, but, but what Martin Luther set off was this kind of, he, he wrote these 95 theses, pounded them to the Wittenberg church door, and essentially what he said is, here's 95 ways that the church is being hypocritical. Yeah. These are, these are 95 ways in which we're not being, we're not being what, what Jesus is calling us to be. This is, this is out of line with the teaching of scripture, you know, and what what started to happen was then as a result of the Protestant Reformation is different denominations raised different flags of hypo- hypocrisy to use as means of justification to leave. And this is deeply embedded in our moral fabric today. Divorce. Why are we so okay with divorce? Because everybody that gets a divorce has a reason why the other person was in the wrong and why it's okay for them to leave. Mm-hmm. I mean hypocrisy unfortunately has become grounds for divorce not just in marriages but in every sector of public life we we don't need to be faithful to each other anymore because what we hear at the protestant reformation we think uh, what martin luther was saying was hypocrisy is is grounds for unfaithfulness and that's not necessarily what he was saying unfortunately that has been in my just my from where i sit in my reading of history, that's one of the greatest detriments of the Protestant Reformation was this shift in ideology, you know. And and I hear I hear the critics, I I hear the the people, um, you know, in the in the great the great womanist feminist movements saying, you know, these institutions that have encouraged abuses um, and have just made them that they've just been okay because of the perpetuating of the status quo. They've not been okay and they need to be undone. I, I completely hear that and I could not agree with that critique more. However, there has never been nor will there ever be a perfect relationship. Saying that does not say it's okay to not have perfect relationships, but what it does say is it's worth working through your issues. And in the church, we would be so much better if we would, instead of just saying, you're a hypocrite, I'm leaving, if we would say, hey, can we, can we work this out? Can we challenge each other? Can we be on equal footing? And this is another thing, this is a good thing that came out of the Protestant Reformation, is that it didn't just have to be top down. Uh, Martin Luther lifted up the priesthood of all believers, which this is a fundamental issue as to what, what you were talking about, um, an ethical baseline, kind of like what's the ethical baseline? Well, the fact of the matter is Luther wanted to lift up the priesthood of all believers saying, hey, we're all called to be holy. Yeah. Everybody's called to be holy. It's not, just based, it's not just about the priests, right? You're a priest. Well, if we take Luther seriously, then I've got to be a lot more ethically responsible than I have been in the past, right? We want to take the part of the Pro- parts of the Protestant Reformation that help me get out of my marriage or like <laughs> help, me, help me with, uh, you know, Live my life the way that I think is is well. That's the Church of England, right? The, that the king wanted to get a divorce. divorce. I'll go start my own church that will allow me to to get a divorce. I think yeah, it's interesting talking about the Reformation, and, and if you look at history, just in the world, and then how the church fits into that. Um, the late Billis Tickle talked a lot about that. Every five hundred years, there seems to be a Reformation of some sort. That there seems to be something that happens in culture that that makes the church look at itself 
and and we're we're kind of so a few years ago there was a big word in in, in Christian circles that was thrown this whole postmodern movement yeah. um, ideology not ideology but just well no it, and it came out of philosophy too I mean it very much intersected the church sure. and there were people in philosophy and theology that were writing a historical critical Bible had been around for a hundred years I mean there were a lot of movements that were intersecting in that. When people said postmodern, they heard a lot of different things, but it, it was very, but I think very hot. When you talk about when the Reformation happened, there's a lot of things happening in culture that yes. I think also spurred that on and and gave it fire and threw gasoline on the yes. spark that Martin Luther threw in there. And so I think that there's things happening in culture today that we're kind of are in this place where the church is really having to look at itself. And I think something that. Um, so what's you know it makes me ask the question so how do we how do we move forward like how do we how do we be better as christians how do we not be hypocritical and we were i was looking at i was listening to another podcast and he was talk this guy made this statement and i'm still kind of processing it so maybe i shouldn't throw it out there but i'm just gonna do it um we're live baby. yeah we're, <laughs> i think that he brought up the, the the guy was talking about the passage in amos where it says you will beat your swords into plowshares and and how this was such a hopeful thing that the thing that was meant to, in essence, bring destruction or cause war, we're going to turn into thing that actually is going to produce for people. And 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 so it is this hopeful passage. But he says what we most often don't understand is the passage that comes right before that. I think that's Amos two or five or somewhere around in there. The first part of Amos is all is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and so he's he's. He's the guy was trying to say, do things have to crumble and go away before we can build or even begin to think of a reimagination, a, a, a rethinking of what this is supposed to actually look like? Is it is it too difficult in the middle of 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 the thing or in the middle of the the institution or the middle of and 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 there's a lot of giant churches there there's a lot of churches that are are doing really well but is it hard in the midst of when we are trying to maintain and prop up something that has been around for once again 500 years we've had a lot of the same beliefs a lot of you know a lot of the same understandings is it hard to reimagine what christianity should look like in the middle of that and do we have to get to a point where we deconstruct and that's to me what the whole postmodern movement was is we are deconstructing thoughts and and long held beliefs about scripture about theology about philosophy about how life even works and i think once again it it came up through culture it came up through a lot of different things but it caused the church to really reflect and what do we hold to be true and so like this is sounds hopeless but are we having are we going to have to wait until it does just crumble? <laughs> is is there hope in the midst of when we have some strong institutions and some strong understandings about how church should be or what we should think or about what ethics should look like? Is it going to have to crumble before we can even begin to conceptualize or understand this is the way forward? This is this is this is the way that we can imagine God would want us to be in the world. Um, and, and this guy was talking even politically, it's, it's, are we seeing our political structure? It seems like it's being tested in so many different ways with, with all of the things that are going on and happening. Are we seeing it fall? 
but maybe that's not as bad of a thing as we think it might be because then something new can actually be birthed from that destruction. I know there's a lot of questions. No, it's the, I th- <clears throat> bringing up the philistical was is pretty profound here in in the sense. I mean, uh, she, uh, I think her book was the Great Emergence. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, uh, it's it's she, really brilliant. If you want a good synopsis of church history and all of the different movements, it's very interesting. And I get it. I read it. Um, it late, I think late in my undergraduate degree, and I actually really rejected it. I thought it was, cr- I thought she was crazy. You know, I thought, um, I don't, I didn't want to believe that the church was kind of being reformed, but there really is, there are a lot of fundamental shifts that are taking place in the church today, even in the Catholic church. I mean, um, Vatican II which was in the late 60s, was very significant for the for the Catholic Church. Yeah. And the ramifications of it are still, they're still trickling down. I mean, just through, and, and Pope Francis for the Catholic Church, which we don't, as Protestants, talk about the Catholics very much, but Catholics are Christians. Sure. Okay. And like, like a more than a billion <laughs> of them. I mean, there's a, like, there's a lot of them, you know, and, and I just, I just want to say it. There are, just God-fearing, Christ-following, Holy Spirit-listening Catholics, yep. okay? And we've got to st- We're not. We are not having a conversation about the Protestant Reformation today to exacerbate the divide, the, the divide, or like to make it bigger. Sure. That's not the point. It's just it's the reality. It's the world in which we live. I was actually reading a Catholic philosopher who says philosophy and Christianity in the West is Protestant now. It just is because so much of what has happened, especially in America, America was very much rooted in Protestantism yeah. as kind of a, and Catholics did not have, uh, Catholics were kind of refugees. They were kind of outcast in America, you know, up until really uh, Kennedy was president as the first Catholic, which that's a different conversation for a different day. Absolutely. Okay. But t- t- talking about, talking about the, the remaking maybe of culture or the church or kind of this baseline. I think that my question that I want to pose, maybe answer together, maybe attempt to answer together, is in the in the complicated milieu, the world, the 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 religious environment that we live in, what has got to be the baseline of Christian integrity, of Christian morals, of Christian ethics? If is it possible to be a Christian and not be a hypocrite? I think it's the question. And Jesus, Jesus is, is the model Christian. I mean, Jesus is the ideal. And we need to recognize that Jesus, he was crucified by the church. He was crucified by the, by the religious institution, which was uh, the Jewish religious institution, and by the state. You know, he didn't have a home ideologically, politically in the mainstream. You just didn't have a home. So so what is the baseline for Christians who want to be Christians of integrity in the world today? And I, I keep coming back to selflessness, mm. self-sacrifice, taking up a cross. Honestly, and maybe this is also the reason that Jesus said, do not judge. Because the person who is holy, the person who's following after Jesus, 
doesn't follow their convictions first. They don't follow their judgments about other people first. They follow the Savior in serving, in loving, in embracing, in taking on a towel in a water basin to wash the feet of the people who would be complicit in his death. You know? Yeah. I mean... Can I take it back even further than that? Go, go, go. I think it really goes to um, Genesis 1 and 2. I think that... Man, you took it way back. <laughs> going all the way back. Um, old school. Um, so I think what we get in that understanding of how God created people is, is I view it... And listen, Scott Daniels has done way more, much more better work on this and, and many other people... But I think it's just these this relational understanding of holiness that 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 when God created people, we were in right relationship with God, and we were in right relationship with other people. Uh, I think we were in right relationship with creation and and understanding that we were to care for and and tend creation. And then I think the last relation aspect was this self understanding of it wasn't that I was all about myself, but I had a good understanding of my place in the role of creation, or we did, people did, our our role in creation in the created order. And I think what we see in Jesus was saying, this was the point from the whole, from the beginning, right relationship with God, right relationship with others. And, and I often joke with my congregation that at the end of Genesis 2, it says that the man and woman were both naked and they felt no shame. And we, as junior high kids, giggle and think, ah, oh, they were naked. And oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, but I think it... The Hebrew actually gives this context of that there was nothing to hide, that we had these open, honest, vulnerable, there was nothing that I was going to keep between other people. There was no no fear that they were going to take advantage if they knew this about me. It was just this open, honest relationship with literally everything around me. <laughs> like legitimately unity with nature even. Yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. And then when the fall happens, we read that they covered up because yeah. now I've got to keep things from you because if you know this about me, wow. then 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 you could use it to your advantage and wow. and and shame me and and like I said that and I think that they felt no shame. I think that's a huge line. I think it's Genesis 2:25 that that our culture is filled with shame and it's filled with covering up it's filled with hiding things from other people and i think that the baseline is i am to be for god with everything that i am i am to actually be for the other no matter race religion creed um ethnicity socioeconomic class like whatever ism or whatever label you want to put on people open honest vulnerable um and then, like I said, we don't talk a lot about this in Nazarene circles, but I think we need to start have a better, robust conversation about creation and how we tend for it and take care of it. But I think you're right. The self is, I view myself as a child of God, but it's a good view of self, not a, a selfish, but a, it is actually this, man, I, I am confident in who I am, but not because of who I am, but because God created me in his image. And so I think Jesus, I think I just love what you said that Jesus is the model, but I think he was modeling what God wanted humanity to be from the beginning, if that makes any sense. This is an amazing concept. Just this idea that Christian integrity in the garden 
is rooted in vulnerability. This, this idea that of oneness with God in the garden, it is possible because of complete vulnerability, openness, transparency, right? Um, and, and this is why, this is maybe why Jesus is so strong on judgment here. Because judgment just it just puts it puts up walls. If um, if my expectations of you um, keep keep us from keep us from authentic relationship, you know, especially if if you're not meeting my expectations, I just allow my frustration and my judgment to just to just drive a wedge between you and I. And. One of one of my favorite my favorite images in the in the garden is when G, when God calls out to Adam and Eve after they've eaten the fruit. He calls out to, he calls out to them because uh, it says in the in the cool of the evening um, they heard the sound of God walking in the garden and he called out to them. The idea that like God just he just wanted to be with them yeah he just wanted to walk with them like the the ideal of of the garden was was this idea of relationship this this just beautiful relationship and i mean we are having a conversation about hypocrisy today because fundamentally our relationships have broken down in christianity and so it seems maybe the way forward is gut level vulnerability with god I think sometimes we, once again, they were hiding from God, and I think that that we we tend to hide from Him. Vulnerability with each other, which I think is so difficult. It's so yeah. hard. Um, and and then just looking at self and being vulnerable with ourself and understanding who I am, where I fit in relation to others, but maybe more importantly, my relation to God, we got to start yeah. there that he's God and I'm not. And, and I think that will help as we interact with each other. And man, I think that is, that's where judgment comes from. That's where judgment comes from. And when people judge, then I have to cover up and hide because if they really know who I am, and I think this is, this is why I think our society is so lonely because we want to, everybody to see our best foot but we don't want people to see us for who we really are because that's a scary scary place to be and um and so i pray for our church um you know you asked the question will there always be hypocrites probably <laughs> um but i pray for our churches and and for the church and for evangelicals that that rather than calling out the other especially during this political time and and labeling others. I pray that as we journey through this time, that we might take a step back and really try to practice being vulnerable with each other and telling people our fears and our concerns and our doubts and and understanding that the church should be a safe place that we can journey with each other through all of those circumstances and situations. And um, if, if we could do that, um, we might see we might see a revolution. We might see something that is that, that the world has never seen before. The Evangelicals podcast 
is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. And again, thanks to Jeff and Amy for the suggestion today.